Well, I grew up in a, I grew up in a church context that, um, to put it like kindly and politely, didn't, didn't really have like a high view of science. So I found myself later in my adult years, uh, I found myself like really fascinated by the sciences. And oftentimes, uh, much to the dismay of my wife, I will bring some random science experiment that I read about to her, usually at like 10 o'clock at night when she's trying to go to sleep. And uh, I will tell her excitedly about this thing, and she's patiently uh, listening and enduring uh, the latest scientific fascination that I have. And um, there was this, this scientific experiment that took place in the 1990s by a biologist by the name of Dr. William Muir that I, I find incredibly fascinating. He's a biologist at Purdue University. And he was trying to figure out uh, how could we enhance egg-laying productivity among chickens. Doesn't that sound fascinating to you? Gosh, you're like your, your poor wife, Paul. Yes. Um, this is the sort of stuff that fascinates me. So here's what he did for his, uh, his experiment in the 90s. It seems pretty simple. He thought, I am going to selectively breed the top egg-producing hens, and I would expect that over successive generations, if we continue to breed these hens and we put them together, that they are going to increase with each successive generation the amount of eggs that they can produce. So to perform this experiment, right, you have to have a control group. So he put in his control group, this first group, he put nine hens in a group together who were pretty just average. They weren't bred for this. They were average in their egg-laying abilities. But they were generally friendly, cooperative chickens. The second group was composed of what he affectionately called his super chickens. And uh, these were the hens that were bred from the biggest and best egg producers. And um, so they put all the cooperative, kind, and friendly hens into one group. And then they put all the super chickens into one group. And measuring the results is going to be really, really simple. All you need to do is just see the total number of eggs produced of each generation. After the study came to a close, Muir was really fascinated by his findings. The kind and cooperative chickens in the control group remained plump, healthy, well-feathered, and even showed an increase in egg production since the start of the experiment. How did the super chickens do? The super chickens actually produced fewer eggs. Why? Like, what went wrong? He was really fascinated by this. Well, the most productive hen that he had bred from each cage just so also happened to be like the biggest bully who achieved their productivity by suppressing the productivity of other hens and chickens, stealing their resources, etc. Sure, breeding the hens that could produce the most eggs seemed like a simple idea, but then he realized that he was also signing up to produce hens that aren't kind and cooperative. In fact, one scientific magazine called these super chickens psychopaths. <laughs> By the end of the experiment, only three of the super chickens even survived. Uh, the rest were uh, plucked to death. Kind of gruesome, right? Sure, it seemed like the chickens that have this sort of I'm going to get my, what's mine no matter what the cost attitude might seem like they would be more likely to win in the short term in this sort of game and contest. They'd be able to bully their way into getting more resources, getting more chicken feed. They'd be stronger and tougher. They seemed like they'd be better suited to produce a lot more eggs. But they didn't win in the long run. The kinder, 
friendlier chickens as a group produced far more eggs than the group of chickens that had been bred to being the egg-laying champions. And guess what happens after a few generations of this? After several generations, the more kind and more cooperative chickens will together have far more children and grand-chicken children and great-grand-chicken children, while the society of selfish, violent, treacherous chickens will die out. Now, if you could call what these different chicken groups are like a culture, and if you could call their disposition and behavior values, then we could say that the average but kind and cooperative chicken culture is going to win the long game against the selfish super chicken culture. The scientific magazine, The Pro-Social World, reached this conclusion as its editor-in-chief, David Sloan Wilson, a distinguished professor of evolutionary biology, wrote, quote, Muir's experiments reveal a tremendous naivete in the idea that creating a good society is merely a matter of selecting the best individuals. A good society requires members working together to create what cannot be produced alone. Now, I know most of you didn't come to church today to hear about chicken science experiments. Uh, if you did, don't worry, I'm going to talk about more at the end. But we'll put a, we'll put a pin in it for now. Um, and uh, we'll come back to it. Well, we've spent uh, all of this fall in the book of Ephesians, so I want to invite you now to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off Le last week. You can start thumbing through your Bible there. I will have our passages of Scripture up on the screen in case you forgot your Bible, in case you don't want to open up your phone lest you be tempted to doom scroll during the service. That's totally fine. So you got physical Bibles in front of you. You got it on the screen, or if you are so inclined, you can, you can open up your Bible apps too. So we've been in the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church community in Ephesus. Now, we believe that through the providence of God that these scriptures have been preserved, handed down to us, and they are still for us today. But it's really important, important hermeneutic recognition that we need to understand whenever we open up our biblical text, this isn't a magic fortune cookie, it's not like a Rorschach test, you know, you ever see those Rorschach tests where it's like, what's the ink plot look like? And then you're essentially just projecting whatever's in your head onto that ink plot. We don't do that with the Bible. We need to realize that the Bible is not written directly to us. It's still for us, but it's not written to us. And even this basic realization can help us maybe uh, get around some poor readings of Scripture. When we crack open our Bibles together, just like we're doing today, we're asking, what was the inspired author saying to the original audience that we can learn from today? In this case, again, Ephesians is attributed to the Apostle Paul, who composed this letter to a relatively new Christian community in one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire, a city located in what is today modern-day Turkey, uh, they would have called it before that Asia Minor. The city is called Ephesus, and he's writing this probably somewhere around 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and this context is important. As a practical example of how context matters, let's take a look at Paul's introduction in this particular section. So today we're starting off at verse 17. So the introduction to this section, Paul didn't write chapters and verses, so you know, those got added later. This section of his letter, in verses 17 through 19, we're going to look at it and we'll, we'll kind of uh, 
try to understand why the context matters and how to help us better understand this scripture text. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, without understanding the historical context here, you can really miss what Paul is talking about here. Now, I remember reading this passage and hearing this passage preached as a kid, and sometimes it came across to me like, like what the Bible's saying here is, hey, anyone that isn't a Christian is giving themselves over to sensuality, greed, all kinds of impurity. They're terrible, awful people. And then I would get practically confused, especially as I got older, and I started to meet people outside of my Christian bubble. And I started to realize, well, some of these people are actually like just as generous. They're just as honest as many Christians that I know. So does that mean the Bible isn't true? No, no, no. We need to understand the context better. And once we understand the context better, we can get at what Paul's trying to say here. This isn't what he was trying to get at. He wasn't just making a generalization that everybody that you meet that isn't a Christian is a terrible person. The Christian community that Paul's writing to, again, situated in this important city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. Ephesus is, one of the, home, is the home of one of the seven wonders of the world. The Temple of Artemis. You can see it pictured there on the screen. Artemis was the pagan goddess of hunting, nature, and childbirth. So this is an epicenter for pagan worship. It's also, and we can actually see this in Acts 19, it's a place that is a hotbed for dark magic and sorcery. In Acts 19, it actually talks about the initial conversion of some of the people of Ephesus to the gospel. Check this out. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living at Ephesus, so he's talking about the gospel, the announcement of the gospel, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So it's fair to assume that at this point, by the time Paul's writing this letter, many of the people in this church congregation who are now part of this new way of Jesus in their old life were like witches and wizards, okay? Top this all off with the fact that Ephesus is one of the two main epicenters in the Roman Empire for the imperial cult the cult of worship dedicated to the Roman emperor. And you probably have a pretty good idea of the old life that many of the Christians in this new Christian community came out of. And it's pretty dark. So when Paul is speaking broadly about Gentile culture, he's talking about this kind of stuff. Pagan worship, coming out of being witches and wizards, uh, imperial worship of the, uh, the Roman emperor, so let's see here what Paul says in verse 20 through 24 about this, hey, you know, I know you used to walk in darkness, but you can't do life like this anymore. This is what Paul says as a reminder. Verse 20 here. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul's like, church, remember that old way of life, your old self, the things that you still are seeing in the culture surrounding your church community, it's corrupt and broken, and you do not want to go back to that old way. You've been given a new way, a new life in Christ. Now, it's important to recognize in this church community, it's still pretty young, right? We're talking maybe 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is a church community that's probably not filled with cradle Christians. Do you know what I mean by the term cradle Christian? Maybe you've heard that term before. You know, so, you know, we just had little baby Ramona up here. Baby Ramona, we're all praying together. Is, is, she's going to be a cradle Christian. Like, she's born into this thing, right? And maybe at two or three years old, she says a sinner's prayer, you know, and grows up in church. You know, that's my story. And it's probably many verses. How many of you would say, like, yeah, I was a, I'm a cradle Christian, born and raised in the church, Right? Not necessarily this church, but in the church general. That looks like the majority of our congregation. That's probably not the case in Ephesus. We've got people here that used to be witches, wizards. They came out of paganism. They were worshiping the Roman emperor. And they renounced all of that because they found a more beautiful way in the way of Jesus. And I'll be honest, like as a, speaking as a cradle Christian, I think sometimes it can be hard to get this distinction between the old life and the new life in Christ in the same way that people who came to Christ later in the years get that. So if that's your story, like if that's your story and you're like, I came to Christ later in life, please tell people your story. Like it's encouraging to those of us that honestly, I don't ever remember a time. I said my sinner's prayer for all my grievous sins at the age of three. You know, like... I don't really remember a time. I'm not saying I've like perfectly followed the way of Jesus my entire life, but I don't have that same recollection as some of you have. You know, not to put him on the spot, but I remember uh, probably about a month or so ago, Craig Husek. Hey, Craig, sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to do this. Craig Husek and I, we were talking after church, and you know, I know some of Craig's story. We've chatted before. I, I know about his like miraculous uh, Escape from Vietnam, like a pretty, pretty cool story there. But I didn't know Craig wasn't a cradle Christian. I just saw the way Craig act. He's always so friendly, greeting people at the door. He's serving here all the time. I would have just assumed Craig is a cradle Christian. But we started talking after service, and he started sharing with me his story. I had no idea that Craig didn't come to know Jesus until later into his adult years. I would have never been able to tell. And I'm so glad Craig told me his story, because as a cradle Christian, I heard that and go, man, that morning I left encouraged, Craig. I was like, you know, because sometimes you go, eh, is this really real? Are we all just kind of like dressing up and playing pretend here? And I was like, no, Craig's a new guy. Now, I don't think Craig was into like black magic. He wasn't a wizard, as far as I can tell. But you know what? I want to tell you guys, those kinds of miraculous transformations in people's lives are still happening. There is still... And there's actually a bold prediction here. You're going to see over the next 10 years in Western culture an increase in explicit pagan worship. It's happening. It's happening right now. And people are hungry for a taste of the transcendent. They're a little suspicious about Christianity. 
a little suspicious about traditional religion. I'm telling you, they're experimenting with that stuff. Years ago, uh, I was at, uh, on staff of the church, Redeeming Love Church. It's an Assemblies of God church in, in St. Paul. And uh, this was about 10, 15 years ago. And there was a new couple that started coming to our church. And, and they were just a wonderful couple. They were so kind. They just exuded like the fruits of the Spirit. And the gal in the couple, she came to me. She's like, hey, I'm, I'm interested in joining the worship team. So I was like, great, come out for an audition. She did her singing audition. And then I... I wanted to talk with her about her faith story, right? Like, so I asked her, you know, tell me about your faith story. Like, what kind of church did you grow up in? Um, what was your church experience like? I was just assuming, once again, this is somebody that's always been following Jesus. So when I asked her, like, tell me about your church experience growing up, she was like, oh, well, I used to be a practicing witch into dark magic. I was like, oh, really? She's like, yeah. Things got so dark that uh, there was a period of time in my life where I stayed in my room, blinds closed, totally dark for a year, just practicing magic and doing drugs. And thankfully, somebody in her life intervened. She ended up in Teen Challenge, became a follower of Jesus. I had no idea from her new life that that was part of her old life. It was awesome, right? Now, I got to just open up to you all for a moment share a little personal conviction. And as I share this personal conviction, I'm not saying I have a blueprint to fix this or to solve this. I want some more ex-witches in my life. Like, don't get me wrong. There isn't anything better or worse about being a cradle Christian versus coming to faith later in life. Uh, and you know what? A church like ours doesn't exist for nearly 140 years some of you have been here nearly that long. You know it. Like, this is amazing. Like, this doesn't happen. Churches, uh, churches collapse all the time. That this church continues to go decade after decade, generation after generation, is a miracle in and of itself. And it doesn't happen without cradle Christians being properly discipled in the faith, growing up and saying, hey, I still want to call this church community my own. There are like, there are, some of you have multiple generations of the same family worshiping here all together. That's amazing. Do you know how rare that is? But with that said, and that's a success story. I want to celebrate that as a success story. You know what also would be really amazing? Like the next time we have a baptism service at Lake Nokomis, and somebody shares their testimony like, yeah, I used to be a witch. I came out of paganism. I was in a cult, right? Wouldn't that be awesome to have more of those stories here too? And I'm telling you, these people are out there and they are hungry for even the slightest glimpse of the transcendent. Because as people are growing more and more weary of this kind of dominant story our culture has lived in, this secular materialist story, the story that would tell us that all there is is matter and nothing more, and that the universe is a mindless, chaotic, random accident without any purpose or meaning, people are tired of that story. And they are increasingly rejecting that story and searching for what C.S. Lewis called the deep magic. I actually think that's one of the reasons why Halloween seems to be turning into one of America's biggest holidays. Have you noticed that? Halloween's way crazier than it was when I was a kid. Some of you are older than me. You're like, what is going on in my neighborhood? There are more Halloween decorations than there ever have been Christmas decorations. What's going on with that? I think people actually want to be haunted. 
haunted by the, by the idea that there's something more than just matter accumulating stuff and dying. That's terrible. And you know what? Even if that something more frightens them, they rather have that than not feel anything at all, than feeling the cold emptiness of the universe. Take the celebrated contemporary British author and poet Paul Kingsnorth. Kingsnorth was raised in a dogmatically atheist home, but as he got older, he went searching for deeper meaning in life. That, that journey in Paul Kingsnorth's life started off, again, atheist home, got into Buddhism. He was like, ah, this isn't doing it for me. And then he got into a form of modern paganism, which is called Wicca. And there, while practicing modern paganism, Wicca, he met a sense that, oh, there are powers beyond me. There's something sacred. But even that didn't satisfy him. It was while he was still a pagan that the love of Christ found him. He found out the love of Christ was hunting him down. I want you to listen here to a bit of uh, the story here from Paul Kingsnorth. It's on a podcast he did with Justin Brierley and the uh, theologian Rowan Williams. I want you to watch and listen to a bit of his story here. There is a sense that a lot of these New Age religions have behind them broadly Christian values, actually. But they don't want to deal, they don't want to deal with Christ, and they don't want to deal with monotheism, and they don't want to deal with the church. A lot of it actually is a, is, a, is a rebellion against institutions, which I think is a much broader cultural issue that's going on at the moment. They just don't like hierarchy. They don't like priests. They don't like institutions. They don't like books with rules in. Um, so it's very much uh, a very contemporary, very post-war Western rebellion against forms, I think. Um, and, and, and I was, I, see, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't so interested in that myself. I was, I was looking for God. Um, and I just started having very strange experiences. Um, which, yeah, these things are difficult to describe, but I was having dreams and I was having experiences and I was meeting Christians every five minutes. I was getting emails from Christians. I was getting, I used to run a writing school and, and I, I endlessly suddenly had vicars writing to me and asking me to, to read their sermons and give them feedback. And I had people I hadn't, I'd known for years suddenly tell me they were Christian and I hadn't known. And I, I felt like, really, I, I felt, uh, I, after, after I'd read some C.S. Lewis, I kind of recognized what was going on, you know, because I felt like I was just being hunted, actually. I thought, oh, oh God, I'm being hunted by Jesus. I can't deal with this. This was not the plan. But it was happening. It's very, I mean, you know, if I'd listened to this sort of thing five years ago, I thought it sounded absurd. But it happened to me, and I mm. felt like I was physically dragged out of, of Wicca, actually. I felt like I was physically being told, you've got to get out of here because this is not good stuff you're doing. And it isn't good stuff, actually. Um, there's, there's all sorts of strange forces at work that people are not necessarily aware of, I think, now. And I really felt like I was... I had, I had asked... I had really been looking for God, and God had come to find me, or Christ had come to find me particularly. Mm. And one of the reasons I thought that this was true apart from the fact that it wouldn't stop, um, was that I didn't want it to be true, interestingly. I, you know, I'd gone looking for Buddhism and I'd gone looking for Wicca because I thought they fitted with how I saw the world, but I didn't think Christianity fitted with how I saw the world at all, and I didn't want to be Christian. Um, and, yeah, that was... And eventually I just basically had to accept that this was happening yeah. and give into it and see where it took me, because I'd asked for it, so now I had to deal with the consequences. What a great story, right? Wouldn't you love to hear more of those in our church community? Stories like that, right? 
Kings North goes on to share about the positive transformation that this new life in Christ produced, and you can hear him describe how he now sees how much darkness there actually was in his pagan wicked practices. I want you to picture a church community that has not only the testimony of generations of cradle Christians, but testimonies like that, that have people side by side worshiping together. Because sometimes we cradle Christians need to hear stories like that. Because again, we go, is this stuff real sometimes? I'll be honest, I have it. I'm a pastor. And I still have moments where I'm like, all right, is this real? And I need to hear a story like from Craig. I need to hear a story from a guy like that. And I go, yeah, this is the real deal. Now, I want to jump into verse 25 through 32, because this is where Paul gives a list of the things that should characterize this new life in Christ. So as a guy like Paul's Kings North comes out of his old way of life into this new way of life, Paul gives us, it's not a comprehensive list, but he highlights some things that should mark what this new life looks like, this new kind of doing life looks like. And it's, in many ways, it certainly was in the first century, in some ways, it still is today. It still is countercultural. So let's talk about these things here. You can look at verse 25 through 32. We're not going to read through it all right now. Here's the first thing. First marker, Paul says. He says, you know what? New life in Christ, this is what it looks like. You put away falsehood and you speak the truth. Put away falsehood and speak the truth. Feel pretty countercultural at times. To be honest in business, in ethics, to be someone that tells the truth, to put away falsehood, especially when it doesn't lead to your immediate advantage. The next thing Paul says, don't let your anger brew. Now, it's important here. Paul doesn't say you can't ever be angry, but he mentions particularly, and he didn't say the word brew. I'm, I'm, I'm using that, that word instead. But there's something about if you let your anger sit with you for a while, it starts to poison you. And then you act seeking vengeance. Not that you can never get angry. There are things in this world to be angry about. They deserve that. They deserve that is a righteous response to injustice. But to sit and to let it brew, it's not the way it's supposed to be in the new way of Jesus. Here's another one Paul mentions. Hey, work an honest job to take care of your own needs and the needs of others. Work hard. Don't be a freeloader. But guess what? You're not just working for yourself. You're working so that you can take care of those who have those down and out moments. We might say they're down on their luck. They go through maybe, a, I was talking, we were praying together about people in the valley. You know, you need to work hard, not just for yourself, but Christ calls us to work hard so that we can take care of the needs of others. The next thing he lists here, we should speak in a way that gives grace and builds up instead of tearing down and grieving the Spirit. Speak in a way, when we speak to each other, gives grace, builds up. It does this instead of this, right? We're doing this together. And if we have a community where everybody's doing this, I'm building you up, you build me up. Doesn't mean it's devoid of speaking the truth and correction, because that's part of speaking the truth. But we're trying to build up instead of tear down. Last thing he lists, and again, this isn't a comprehensive list, but these are some of the features that he wanted to mention. Be kind and forgiving to each other. And this seems to be increasingly countercultural, to offer forgiveness instead of looking for your pound of flesh. We can see in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, as Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God 
that the virtues and behaviors that we just listed, that he just listed above, flow from a life of imitating God in Christ Jesus. In particular, that we walk in love and forgiveness just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now next week, Pastor Joel, he is going to get into the list of behaviors and characteristics that are normal in that old life. And we're also normal in the dominant culture of Ephesus surrounding this church community. So I'm not going to spoil that, but I will say this. Paul's point in comparing this new life in Christ with the old life of darkness is to show that what might still be normal in the surrounding culture may feel like the norm. It might feel like this is normal behavior, normal behavior. But that's just because they live in Ephesus. That's just because you live in Minneapolis. That's because you live in America. There are norms that aren't to be the norms of our new life in Christ. We are actually called to build a better kind of community. If you were to put these community norms side by side, right, like a people that together they speak the truth, they're kind and forgiving, they work hard and take care of the needs of others. They forgive. They don't let their anger brew. You put that side by side with a list of like, all right, here's community A. Here's community B. Community B, people lie all the time. They're always looking for revenge. They're going to tear you down at any moment's notice. And you put those two communities side by side. Nobody in their right mind is going to look at those two lists and go, yeah, I'm going to pick that one over the Christian community. God's way is better, but the tricky part for us as we find ourselves situated in a culture that often has very different values, as we feel that, we can look at the apparent success of others who aren't telling the truth, who are tearing down instead of building up, and they can kind of look like the super chickens, right? They're like, man, these people are getting stuff done, they're rich, they're famous, they're getting ahead in work, do you look at, look at their life? But be reminded here, the super chickens don't win in the end. Communities and cultures that run against the grain of God's intended order for the universe ultimately fail. I'm a little bit of a history nerd. I think if you go back and you simulate the events of World War II over and over again, and you go through a thousand different scenarios where Nazi Germany could have done this and they could have done that instead, I still bet in all these alternative historical scenarios that the Nazis still lose in the end. They still lose in the end. It's why, like, even in fiction, have you noticed this? I'm a bit sometimes of a comic book nerd. Have you noticed, like, in fiction, there's no really good evil super teams? You got the Avengers, you got Justice League. Why? Why do those work? Well, because they're not selfish, they cooperate together. But you can't even picture in fiction, we can't even conceive of evil super teams. They don't work. You can't get Lex Luthor and the Joker together and have something successful come out of that. It's like the super chickens. They'll peck each other to death first. The kingdom of God is a different kind of culture, one that's marked by light instead of darkness. So I want to close today with just two charges to send you out this morning together. Yes, there is so much of God's goodness in the broader culture. Not everyone that you work with or go to school with who isn't a professing Christian is deceitful, vengeful, given to all sorts of impurity. That's not what Paul is saying here is definitely not the case. Guess what? Christ is at work everywhere, and sometimes people respond to the light of God's grace without knowing what it is that they're responding to, and you can see the goodness in their life. 
But there's also a lot of dark and a lot of damaging things in our broader culture that may feel like it's the norm. The Apostle Paul would tell us, don't be conformed to those norms. See through them. You have to see through. You might go like, this is normal. Uh, my kids will roll their eyes at this. I often say at my house, I don't care what normal is, right? <laughs> I don't care what normal is. We need to see through that some of these norms in our culture, they lead to death and destruction. That's the old way of life. Christ has called us into a new kind of life. So I want to charge you with that. There's a lot of brokenness out there. There's a lot of goodness. And we get to bear witness to it. Secondly, as I mentioned, there are hungry and hurting people who've been born and raised in a church that hurt them, or they may be practicing witches or wizards or pagans. They're not your enemy. And you're actually, this might come as a relief to some of you, you're not called to like give them a sales pitch either. That's not what being a witness is. You're not even called to fix them. That's not your job to fix them. You are called, though, to bear witness with your life and your words to the light and beauty of Christ and welcome them into this new kind of family where there's a new way of life to be found. So maybe some of you have a Paul Kingsnorth in your work, in your neighborhood, in your school, and one day their story is going to be like, I just kept having these Christians being so nice to me. I felt like I was surrounded by Christians, and I felt like Christ was hunting me down. I want that to be the story of our church on mission together. I want to invite you to stand and pray together as we, we head into a time of singing again. And I just pray that for each one of us that we would be able to see the lies of the dark for what it is, that it is darkness, that it leads to death and destruction, that we wouldn't be tempted by that old way of life, that we wouldn't be tempted by the darkness in our broader culture that you've called us to inhabit as salt and light. And I pray for each person in here that you empower and equip us, whether we are cradle Christians or came to Christ later in life, you'd empower us to display in our lives, in our testimony, and our witness, the beauty of Christ to a hurting world. In your name, amen.